0: So, um, finally, this morning I woke up, five o'clock in the morning, got downstairs to finish off my sermon and open up my laptop. And nothing. Absolute. All of my research, all of my slides are locked in that laptop. And no matter what I did, I even fasted and prayed. Um, I could not get anything out of it. So, we're we're just going to kind of do like what I do, when it's kind of like a Bible study, and we're going to work through that, and uh, I'll trust that it's somewhere in God's providence that this is why it happened the way it happened, and we'll just do it this way. So you're not going to have much in the way of slides today, and uh, I hope that's okay, but we will make it work. So if you want to turn to your Bibles into Luke uh, chapter 1, we're going to be talking about Mary today. And so um, as we do, I want, now remember last week we talked about the angels as a, as a primary group or a group of characters in this biblical narrative and that the, you, you really need to talk about angels with, with light and darkness as a backdrop in terms of why you talk about angels and that there was a very important reason why the angels appeared to the shepherds at night. Because the people were living in darkness and they were trying to make a point with an exclamation point uh, that, uh, that, that God is light and that he was going to bring them out of darkness. And that he not only sent the angels to make that point, but that he sent Gabriel, the archangel. Uh, so he didn't send a, a lesser group or, or a lesser ambassador or a messenger. He sent the best of the best because he wanted to convey to those shepherds, to Mary, to anyone who heard, he wanted to convey to them, this is, this is big time. This is significant. You are worthy of this kind of um, personage to bring this message. Um, and, so, and so those were some of the takeaways from last week. Um, if we read this narrative, this story about Jesus being born, um, there are about what I would consider to be, I mean, if you, were to read, if you were to describe it as a drama, there are about five acts to this drama. So I'm just going to go over this real, real fast before we, read, we begin to read this story. So act number one is the synopsis that was read earlier this morning in Matthew 1, 18 through 25. So Matthew 1, 18 through 25 is a synopsis. Matthew gives you just a brief overview of the birth narrative of Jesus. That's what you get from Matthew, Matthew uh, 1, 18 through 25. That's act number one. Act number two is from Luke 1, 5 through 25, and that recounts the birth of John the Baptist and, uh, and, the, and Gabriel's encounter with Elizabeth and with Zechariah, Right? So, in fact, what's important about that story is that uh, it's one of the four times that, the, that Gabriel identifies himself. In fact, that the name Gabriel comes up in the whole of Scripture. So, we'll talk about it a little bit more in the future, but Gabriel appears in, in uh, the book of Daniel, I believe in chapter 8 and chapter 9, and then in this book... He appears as Zechariah is offering incense in the temple court. And he says to Zechariah that your wife, who is advanced in years, uh, and you've been childless, she's going to get pregnant. And Zechariah, who's old, and you know how we are, the older you get, the less of a filter you have, right in your mind, sometimes you here what you say. And so he was kind of like uh, cynical that um, that Elizabeth could get pregnant, and so he was struck dumb. He couldn't speak anymore. But as Gabriel was talking to him, he said to Zechariah, My name is Gabriel. Now, Zechariah, who was a teacher of the law, would have known the name Gabriel very well. And with all of the teaching that was a part of the Torah and the Mishnah, and eventually what was called uh, the Gimel, uh, with all of the teaching that was going on in there and all of the the oral tradition related to angels, the name Gabriel to Zechariah would have been really significant. So when Gabriel introduced himself and said, My name is Gabriel, Gabriel, all of a sudden, in Zechariah's mind, some things would have clicked. Because did you know that the only time that Gabriel was used in, the, in the, both the Old Testament and the New Testament was in relationship to the, to the fulfillment of the Messiah? That's significant. So Zechariah would have been like, oh, okay, uh, uh this, this is not only an important person, but that's super big, super huge news for me. Because if the Israelites hung on anything in addition to the law, they hung on to the promise of the Messiah. And the fact that Gabriel was connected to the fulfillment of the Messiah was something that made Zechariah have one of those profound aha moments. Right? So, that's Act 2. Act 3, the birth of Jesus is, for, is foretold. And so Gabriel visits Mary in Luke 1, 26-38. So if you ever wanted to read the Christmas story, you might want to read it in this order. Right? To your grandchildren, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day. This would be a good order to read the, the Christmas story in. Act number four, Elizabeth go, gives birth to John the Baptist, who is a cousin of Jesus' and who is the person that kind of sets the ministry of Jesus up. So in Luke 1, 57 through 80, we read where Elizabeth gives birth to John the Baptist and then Zechariah's prophecy, which is significant. Act five is the birth of Jesus. And we read about that. In, uh, in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And as a part of that, we read about his birth in Bethlehem. And then in verses 8 through 20, we read about the shepherds and the angels. And then we go back to Matthew, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, about the visit from the wise men. And then we read about Jesus being presented at the temple in Luke 2, through 38. So that's the overview of this birth narrative related to Jesus. Now, I do want to mention this, too, because this is really important. Matthew spends a lot of time in the genealogy of Jesus. That is, all of the four forefathers... Of, um, of, uh, of Joseph who led up to Jesus. And that's important because it goes all the way back to David. And so the Davidic covenant that we read about was fulfilled in Christ, and it's traced back through all of the ancestors of Joseph, so that when Mary hears this, what she's going to hear through her is the birth of her son, who was the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And I can promise you that if Mary knew anything about the Old Testament, she knew about the the Messianic promises as they were fulfilled through David. And it's clearly probably one of the things that kind of settled her down, that amazed her, right? So, We'll come back to that in a minute, but let's let's turn now to um, uh, Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 26. So in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed. So the author, Luke, is very clear to say that Mary was a virgin. Now, do you know why it was important for Mary to be a virgin? Does anybody know why it was important that Mary be a virgin? Because, but what's the significance of that? It was God's son. What's that? Purity. Purity. So there's a great there's a great doctrine re, re, that's related to this. Do you know what the doctrine is? The doctrine of total depravity. So if Jesus had been a product of Joseph and a product of Mary and their DNA, he would have inherited their condition, their original sin and the and their doctrine of depravity. Does that make sense to you all? Yeah. So he's very, So he makes it very clear here that Mary was a virgin and he goes on to say, God placed Jesus in your womb. God placed Jesus in your womb. That's in essence what happened. So let's continue to read this. So in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man who was named Joseph. Now this idea of betrothal, there were three stages of what it meant to be betrothed. The first of which was a father usually would approach another family and say, hey, I think that my son would be a great match for your daughter. What do you say we betroth them to each other? So I'm just looking around here. Some we got a couple of teenagers. What do you think? Do you think you ought to make the you think you ought to make arrangements for your boys to marry certain girls? Would they be open to that today? Probably not. You know, they don't want you. To, and so it sounds very strange to us today that parents would do that. But in that time, Marriage was not about two individuals coming together under a marriage. It was about two families arranging a marriage. The fact, you you really didn't have a whole lot of say in who you were going to marry. There were some exceptions. You might have some influence, but by and large, it was the parents who made those arrangements. And so that was, that was the first st- st- stage of a betrothal. The second stage of a betrothal was that there was this formal ceremony that would take place. And it was very similar to almost like a wedding ceremony. But after that ceremony, you went from that point on six months to a year before you were actually married. But in that ceremony, you were in essence married other than the fact that you cohabitated together and other than the fact that you could consummate the marriage. You could not do those two things for the next 6 to 12 months. And so if either of you did anything by that, it, during that time, it would be considered to be adultery. So you were like 99.9% married, but not quite married. Right? So, uh, so there was this betrothal to Joseph. And both, both of them are described as being righteous. That Mary is, is described as being righteous, as is Joseph. Um, So these were two, um, uh, two distinctive people in terms of their particular faith and how they practiced their faith and the kind of character that they had in that regard. Now Mary at the time, by all accounts, was probably 12 to 14 years of age. Now I know, if you look at the average 12 to 14 year old today... And think about them getting married, you, you're, it, you would, you would, uh, you would uh, shake your hand in w- wonderment. You're like, no, that's probably not a good idea. But bear in mind that in that time, people matured a little faster than they mature today. And the average lifespan of a person back then was between ages 30 and 35. Half the children who were born died before age two. And by the time you were an adult, one quarter of the children died. The average woman had to have six pregnancies before before they could move beyond zero population growth. So you know zero population growth is two. So, the average woman back then had to have six pregnancies before you move beyond zero population growth. And the leading cause of death for women in that time was pregnancy. So, you can see that in many ways, given the nature of the culture and the time, it probably made sense the couple's married younger rather than older because the older you got, the less children you could bear and the likelihood of how many children would pa- you would lose. It makes sense too, doesn't it? Why in, in every culture, particularly Jewish culture, they value children so much. I mean anybody who has lost a child knows how painful it is to lose a child. And if you lose three or four children and only keep two or three, then the keeping of those two or three, are just it's just so incredibly precious. There were no guarantees. Do you know what the infant mortality rate is today throughout the world? 4.6%. throughout the world today versus 50% during the time of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. So you can see then the significance of why it was important maybe to begin earlier. Now, some people like to think of Joseph as being older it really doesn't make sense for Joseph to have been much older than Mary. Um, and, uh, and so, you, you know, you, you get this, in some accounts, you, you get this almost like creepy thing where this person, this, this man Joseph is like in his 30s and Mary's like 12 or 14. That's probably not the case. It probably was a pretty traditional marriage. And, um, and as with all families during that time, when you married somebody, you stayed in the community in which you got married. So you had the support of your family. So if Joseph was a carpenter, chances are his parents were, his dad was a carpenter. and So you had all of this sort of, you know, connections so, that could take place there. So in any case, Mary was age, age probably ages between ages 12 and 14, and she had a distinctive character about her. She was considered to be righteous. And as, as was Joseph. Righteous enough to bear the God, the Son of God, right? Uh, pretty, pretty amazing thing. So, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, the house of David. So she belonged to the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he, that is Gabriel, came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. That word favored means honored. Greetings, honored one. You're a 12 or 14 year old girl. And the most powerful angel among all the angels shows up and uh, says, You are honored. Can you imagine? All of the glory and the magnificence of this angel appearing before you, and he calls you honored. Greetings, O favor, when the Lord is with you. So the Lord is on your side. The Lord is your protector. But she was greatly troubled. That word troubled means like curious or like perplexed. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern to figure out what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. I I really love word studies sometimes. And this word favor uh, comes from the Greek word charis. Do you know what charis means? Grace. 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 It's the word grace. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor. Grace with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So Gabriel just recited a significant portion of the Davidic covenant that you find in whole from 2 Samuel chapter 7. But let's just read a summary of it, okay? So if you want to, turn to your Bibles, uh, to first. Chronicles, First Chronicles 17, and this is what it says in First Chronicles 17. Mary would have been very familiar with this passage. She would have known this particular passage very, very well, as, as all children in Judaism were taught uh, Judaism as well as all of the other kinds of teachings that were associated with it. But this is from First Chronicles 17. So when Gabriel recited this portion here, it should have ignited in her mind, and probably did, this summary of the Davidic covenant. Verse 11. When your days are fulfilled, he's talking to David here, when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you one of your own sons, or great-great-great-great-grandsons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, that would be Solomon, but I will confirm him in my house, and my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. You see the connection? So Gabriel is citing this in a very in a very, very, deliberate manner. He's telling Mary, that child that is in your womb is the son. Not the direct, not, not the biological son, but in essence, the son. Because you are a descendant of David, because Joseph is of the son, because you are there, his earthly fathers, and, and you, are, you are the steward over him as you give birth to him, because of your connection to David in that regard, you, you, he, is, he is the great, 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 whatever, grandson of David. He is part of the Davidic covenant. He is the person that I will raise up, and he will establish the kingdom forever and forever. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? A very practical question. She was old enough to know how things worked. How can this be since I am a virgin? And the angels answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and And therefore the child will be born and called the Most Holy Son of God. In essence, the Holy Spirit will place this child in your womb. And behold, your re- and so he goes on to say then, which is kind of interesting. Um, it, it, it's it's like um, it's like he's saying this. It's like he's saying, you know, your your cousin or relative Elizabeth, yes. Well, you know that she's advanced in years. Yes. You know that probably her, the likelihood that she could ever have a child is completely out of the question. Yes. I mean, all of these are the underlying questions and answers, right? And well, well, even she is going to get pregnant and give birth because with God, nothing is impossible. So in other words, Mary is saying, how is it possible for me to give birth because I am a virgin And Gabriel responds by saying, well, your relative Elizabeth is so advanced in years, there's no chance that she could give birth on her own, except for how God can work in our lives, because for God, nothing's impossible. So that's why Mary went to go be with Elizabeth to check this out. And lo and behold, Elizabeth is pregnant. She shouldn't be. It was impossible to be, by any standard anybody would know back then. It would be impossible for Elizabeth to be pregnant, and yet she was. So if Elizabeth could get pregnant, way beyond her years for giving birth, how is it? How now could it be possible that Mary could give, could, could become pregnant and give birth, even though she was a virgin? So those are some of the things that are going on, I'm sure, in this account. So, um, so then um, he, they, he goes on to say, um, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Now, I, I just need to tell you, and I've said this in years past, and I'll say it again. I always posted it on Facebook this morning just because it's Advent season. I'm just saying that these are among the most profound words in the whole of Scripture. There is no way that Mary could hide her pregnancy in that tiny little community that she was living in. And like many tiny little communities like that, they're probably pretty conservative. She knew that if she were to be if she were to become pregnant and look like she was pregnant in that tiny little community, betrothed to Joseph, she knew nobody there would believe her if she said, well, you know, look, this angel showed up, said that I was really blessed and favored by God and that God was going to put a baby inside of my womb. That's how I got pregnant oh no. The immediate conclusion everybody in that community would have drawn was that she had committed adultery. And that in some, well at least in the Old Testament and I don't know how much it was practiced at this point because of Roman rule it would have qualified her to be stoned. So She was going to get pregnant, and she had no explanation about how she got pregnant other than what Gabriel had said to her, and people would have concluded that she had been fooling around and had committed adultery and had dishonored Joseph. And so we read in Matthew that when Joseph finds out that she is pregnant, because she tells him, he set in his mind to divorce her quietly, because it would have taken a divorce so that he could retain his honor. He chose not to, uh, so he, he chose not to make it her a public spectacle, but to divide, to, but to divorce her quietly, so was, so to minimize any dishonor in her life, and then the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and said, no, I want you to marry her because what she's carrying is a child from God. So Mary then knew that, there, that this would come at a great cost and she had no idea how this would impact not only her but her family as well. Because in that, in that culture, unlike our own culture, Uh, you know, we don't tend to see what our children do as dishonoring us as a family. It doesn't impact our business, our livelihood as much, but it certainly would back then. Does this make sense to all of you? I mean, this was huge. But what is Mary's response? I mean, all of that had to have gone through Mary's head. And what was her response? Her response was this. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. That word servant is doulos. And depending on the context, you interpret that as a servant, as a person who works for you or slave. It's also used for the word slave. Behold, I am the doulos, the servant, the slave of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Pretty courageous statement, don't you think? It's really astounding. So I I, want to kind of ask us this question because I think that there are some important takeaways on this passage alone. And um, I want to run it past you because I think this is, you know, in terms of personal application, this is just really important for all of us here. So when she says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. Uh, and, and with her considering the real life consequences in her life and re- as it relates to the culture. Um, what is our response when God moves in our life and doesn't ask us our permission. I mean, basically, he hijacked her body. I mean, you can hardly do anything more personal than to hijack a person's body in that regard, and by extension, to hijack their life. It's not like God sat down with her and said, Hey, you know, I have this idea, I have this plan. I'm wondering if you would be interested in it. Is it okay if I place a child in your womb and from that point on, you live your life according to him, raising him him up and keeping him safe so that he can become the savior of the world? What do you say? Does that sound like a great idea to you? There was no permission giving here. God exerted his sovereign will over the life of Mary. And God is sovereign. There isn't anything that we have, anything that we do, anything. there isn't anything that, that is a part of our life that God didn't either author or doesn't own or isn't ultimately in control of. So it seems to me that there are kind of like two, um, two ways to look at this in terms of God's sovereignty. So, the first of which is um, kind of a negative... Well, let let me just say this first. When Mary says, Behold, I am the Lord's servant, let it be to me according to your word, there is this complete surrender and submission to God, to His sovereign will and plan. How many of us, I wonder, in our lives when we've sensed God wanting to exert his sovereign will over our life, asking us to be or to do something, and we resist it. We don't submit. We don't surrender. We fight it. Mary didn't fight it. She surrendered. She submitted. Regardless of what could have happened to her, she did what the Lord wanted to do with her. Now, it seems to me that when we live our life, that there's a kind of a negative application to this. The first is which is like this. Why won't God save me from... You fill in the blank. Why won't God save me? I've prayed, and I've prayed, and I've prayed, I've asked, and I've asked, and yet He won't do this thing that I want Him to do. Why won't He do that? So if we've prayed, and prayed, and asked, and asked over a certain period of time, you can only conclude what? It must be His will. And that somewhere in there is some kind of redemptive thing that we're supposed to find and live out. So maybe the maybe when, when we say God isn't answering my prayer, maybe the unanswered prayer is God's answer. And that's a tough thing. I mean, I, certainly those many of us in the United States don't have to deal with the harshness of that as other people, other Christians do in other parts of the world, where they are losing their life, where they are suffering, or whatever. But here in the United States, if God wants to exert his sovereign will over our life, surely it's easier here than it is in other places of the world. And so that when God doesn't answer our prayers, maybe that's the prayer that is answered. And so we submit to it and we surrender it. And we try to find in that thing what God wants us to do. Maybe when we are being oppressed and we think it's unfair and unjust. We learn how to live like Christ in that oppression and therefore become more of a witness for Christ in that way. Now that's just the one. But there's a, net, there's a, there's a positive way of looking at it too. So it's in other words, why won't God save me from to why won't God give me what I want? I once had a man say to me, the only thing I want is a dollar more than I could ever spend, and that's not too much, is it? I posted a meme on my Facebook not too long ago where somebody said, you know, um, don't regret not having more than what you have, because remember that what you have now you used to want. And we're like that. It's really never enough. Did you ever think that maybe sometimes God only gives us what it is that you know, He only gives us the good things, enough of the good things that we have, because if we got anything that was even more good or even better, we just really couldn't handle it very well? You know, there's like a lot of pastors who want bigger and better churches. And they get frustrated that they can't have a bigger or a better church. When in reality, it's God's blessing that they don't have a bigger, better church because they couldn't handle a bigger, better church. It would go to their head. It would give them pride. So sometimes when God doesn't give us what we want, I mean, I'm sure that Mary just wanted a normal life she was just going to marry joseph this carpenter they were going to have kids he's going to have a thriving business they were going to do well live with you know in the, in the, in the community but that's not what god did so i wonder how many of us and i'm including myself in this can lead with on a daily basis Um, a statement to God, a prayer to God. Lord, I am your servant. Whatever you have planned for me, whatever you said you have planned for me, let it be as you have said. Do you think God hasn't articulated a plan for every person in this room? You think he doesn't have a specific idea about how he wants every person in this room to live out their life? He absolutely does. And he, I'm sure, tries to communicate that to us on a regular basis. And he speaks to us through his Holy Spirit. And so, as he is speaking to you, and he says, I want you to speak to this person, I want you to invite that person, I want you to do for that particular person, I want you to interrupt your life, I want you to be inconvenienced, I want you to make sacrifices. And our response is, yes, but. Or is it. May it be to me, as you have said, I am your servant. I just wonder what the world would look like if we were a bit better at that. If I was better at that. If that was my first inclination. So in this way. You know, I think one of the primary takeaways here is the example of Mary. This little 13, 14 year old girl who, despite all of the horrible things that could have happened to her, who, despite the fact in which the way in which God hijacked her life, that she submitted herself to that and she surrendered to his plan and she embraced it and she gave birth to Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. I'll say this. Look, I'm not convinced that, that if, I'm not convinced that Jesus or God couldn't have found another Mary. I mean, if, if Mary had decided to disobey God in some fashion or another, I, you think he could have found another Mary? I probably could have found another Mary. But in his providence, he knew that Mary would be born. He knew the kind of person she would be. He knew that she would be the perfect person for what it was that he was wanting to attempt. So you have that, that argument as well. But I would just say, as we participate in the Lord's Supper this morning, that we have the heart that Mary had. Because Mary gave birth to Jesus but we are to bear Jesus. Jesus was born through Mary. Jesus is born in our lives, B-O-R-N-E. And so when God says to you, to me, I want to hijack your life. I want you to use your body so that my son can be born in your life in this world in which we find ourselves, can you see how our lives can parallel that of Mary's? So I'm not going to have time to get to the other text that I wanted to get to this morning, but if you want to read the whole and the complete story, then I've given you the outline this morning. But this is a remarkable, remarkable narrative. And I hope that we allow it to continue to speak to us and shape our lives and that in that way that Mary responded that it would be instructive and inspirational for all of us here this morning.